Hi, everybody. This is Jeannie Faulkner, and you are listening to Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics, the podcast where we talk about all of that and a whole lot more. I am the author of the book, Common Sense Pregnancy. I'm an ex-labor and delivery nurse, and I'm the mother of quite a few kids. And that's how we started this conversation and how we talk about all the different connections and intersections and life paths that make up modern parenting. So last week, huh? That was dark and sad. And we talked a lot about gun violence and Toni Morrison. And I don't know about you, but this week we totally need to switch gears. So instead of me rambling on, we are going to get right to this week's guest to talk about something non-political, not sad, and not even really all that much about pregnancy. Well, okay, a little. We're going to talk about dads. But first, we're going to hear from a sponsor. Okay, that's it. We're going to talk about a topic that I find just fascinating. It's the research and data and that proves that fatherhood is just as biologically complicated as motherhood. Uh, Dr. Anna Machen is an evolutionary anthropologist and academic visitor. She's a member of the Social and Evolutionary Neuroscience Research Group at the Department of Experimental Psychology at the University of Oxford. She's also the author of The Life of Dad, The Making of the Modern Father. Let's get her on the line. Hi, Anna. It's Jeannie. Hi. Hello. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I hope you're good too. I am. So I am calling you from Portland, Oregon at 11 o'clock in the morning, and it's gray and drizzly, and my neighbors are actually outside my window discussing their garden. So if you pick that up, then that's where we are. Yeah. How about you? Tell me where you are. I am sitting in my office in my garden in Buckinghamshire in England. It's mm-hmm. 7 o'clock at night, and for once, it's actually sunny. Oh, <laughs> nice. We've had an awful summer, so this is this is a bit bit of a surprise. Nice. Good for you. We've been having an awful summer too, and I I hear that our climate and your climate are very similar. Oh, Gr- really? Gray, yeah. gloomy, yeah. drizzly most of the year. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. So if we don't get our summer, it's bad news. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I feel a little cheated this year because it's gray right now. I'm going to get a sunny afternoon, but you know, I don't know about you, but I feel cheated if I don't get my summer. Absolutely. No, I start feeling, you know, pretty desperate in about September, October if I haven't had the sun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then there's just no living with us in February and March, right? <clears throat> oh, absolutely. No, I'm afraid we do have to have a little break at sort of February, March time or else we just can't keep going. To be yeah. <laughs> we just can't go on. That's it. <laughs> we all lie down in the puddles and give up. well Anna enough about our nasty weather (laughs) my first question is always this who are you and what do you do well who am I I'm an evolutionary anthropologist and I work at the University of Oxford and my real passion in life is understanding really the scientific underpinnings of people's closest relationships. So I look at people's romantic relationships. I look at the relationships they have with their children. Uh, I look at friendships. 
Um, so really, I always say to people, my job is really to answer the question, what is love? But to try and look at it in all of the different contexts that we as humans might might use that. So it's not just those those relationships we have with our fellow humans, but the relationships possibly we have with our pets, the relationship we have with our God, whoever it might be. And that's that's really my passion to try and understand it, because I think our relationships, the people we love, sit at the very center of who we are. Um, and it's very important that we nurture them when, you, when we understand them. So that's really what I do. Oh, my God, that's the best job title I have ever heard in my entire life. <laughs> I thought I was going to be impressed about, you know, the Oxford part and the Buckinghamshire, all of this. Yes. But the way that you just described your job is remarkable. Well, I'm really lucky because I, I get to be with people sometimes at the most profound moments of their lives. So I spend a lot of time um, following particularly fathers men as they become fathers for the first time so you know being with them as that moment happens and, and following them on that transition or being with people you know as their relationships start to form or whatever it might be you get to be in this really privileged position so while I'm a scientist and obviously there's lots of hard science goes on in the background it's actually just a really human-centered job and that's why I like it because I just get to really be with people in their lives and that's that's what makes it so interesting. So not coming from an academia, you know, world or model. My understanding is that when you work in an academic setting, you have sort of your broad title for you, which would be evolutionary anthropologist. And then you have your your subheading, which would yeah. be, I believe what you just described to us as being one who researches relationships and love. Yeah. And then your sub subheading, your specialty niche is fatherhood. Did I do it, it? Yeah, I would say that's right. You know, my real passion out of all the research I do is the work I do with fathers. That's that's the thing that I get most excited about doing. And actually, in one sense, is the most interesting because we know so little still about about what happens to a man when he becomes a father and what role he plays in his children's lives. And I think that's why, to me, it's the most fascinating because, you know, as, as an academic, as a scientist, there's nothing we like better than like a big black hole <laughs> yeah. that we have to like dig into and try and work out what is going on in front of us. And, um, and just also, you know, as I said, it's those privileged moments when you first see a man hold his baby and stuff like that. That's just the most. And to be so lucky to, to be allowed in to see that it's, you yeah. know it's an amazing relationship I build with the fathers I follow yeah yeah I know I I was really privileged myself I I worked as a labor and delivery nurse for many <laughs> many many years and that is one of the highlight moments in every birth that you watch for or hope for yeah yeah absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I think you know it's very special yeah yeah so I want to back up just a couple of steps because I think a part of your your um of who you are that uh we didn't mention in your bio or introduction is your parenthood that you are a parent mm -hmm. and I'm curious about what you do in your life when you're not being an evolutionary anthropologist and then we're going to spend the rest of the time talking about the dad stuff for sure okay cool what do I do when I'm not an evolutionary anthropologist when yeah. I'm not directly researching I do well I'm a mom uh -huh. yeah uh, I'm married I have two daughters and a stepdaughter uh so I spend a lot of time being a mom and I'm very lucky with my with my job because uh at Oxford I do a lot of while I do some research I also do a lot of public engagement so I spend a lot of time talking to the public but that makes the job quite flexible which means I also get to spend 
you know, a good amount of time with my own children, which is, you know, my real joy in life. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it can be a bit tricky. You might know this as well, having in the field that you were in, that, you know, you read all this stuff about how you should parent or you write all this stuff about how you should parent uh, and then you do it yourself. And yeah. sometimes you find yourself falling off the uh, off, off the route you're supposed to be on. So sometimes I spend my whole life thinking, oh, I can't believe I just said that. Yeah. Um, but uh, but I love I love being a mom. I, I It's the most amazing job in the world I think and just to see see these these babies grow up I mean mine are 12 and 9 now mm. so you know particularly the 12 year old is really changing um, oh, yeah. and that's, that's amazing you know you start to see who they're going to become and what their ambitions are and yeah it's I yeah. love it so that spend most of my time doing when I'm not an evolution anthropologist it's it's time consuming it's very time consuming <laughs> <laughs> it is that's the thing even when you're at work you're also in the back of your mind as all I think it's all parents know you're also thinking you know you know, have I, you know, done the right packed lunch? What time do they need picking up from school? How am I going to, you know, organize this play date, etc. Yeah. It's just running constantly in the background. I know we all have 30 tabs open in our brains at any one time. And that's just the parenting chunk. Exactly. exactly. I know it. I know. Which remind me later in the conversation to get you to answer that question. How many tabs do the dads have open? But mm-hmm. that's for later. That's for later. Okay. 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 So, how did your interest in fatherhood, I mean, what ignited that? Was it your own becoming a parent yourself? Yeah, it was. And it was, it was because when I had my first daughter, uh, obviously, you know, when you, just, you decide to have children and you do it and you do it as a couple, and certainly my husband and I did, you know, we thought very deeply about it and decided we're going, this was the time we're going to have children. And, you know, you do the test together and then you go to the antenatal appointments together and he came to the sort of the antenatal classes and all that. And then I had my baby and unfortunately it, it went, it was quite a traumatic birth. Um, and I became quite ill and my daughter became quite ill. And uh, I don't remember much about the birth, even though it was very, very traumatic. And at one point they didn't know whether we would both live. And because uh, I passed out. Mm-hmm. So I can't actually remember that. Whereas obviously my husband witnessed the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Afterwards, I was offered counseling. You know, did I want to deal with this? And to be honest, I was like, well, no, because I can't really remember it. But nobody offered my husband anything. And for a good two years after our daughter was born, he literally couldn't talk about the birth. He didn't want to think about any of it without he got visibly very emotionally distressed. And I just thought, mm, that's interesting. Because we've got this guy in the room and he's actually going through this amazing, I imagine, change. We're both becoming parents and he really wasn't seen as an equal in that to me. And I thought that's quite interesting. So when I went back to work, I looked at what we knew as an anthropologist about this key figure in our society. And we knew pretty much nothing so there was a lot of research done, and obviously it's incredibly valuable on the impact absent fathers have on their children, for example. But mm-hmm. nothing on the actually the majority of dads who do stick around and they do, you know, parent as well as they can, and and they are involved in their children's lives. There was nothing. We knew nothing about them, and I thought, well, that's pretty shocking. And actually, that's quite an indictment of of my profession as anthropologist that we we haven't bothered to find out anything about this guy. So I just thought, okay, let's let's start with a really big open question. You know, who is dad? What is his role in the family? And what happens to him when he becomes a father for the first time? So it was a really big, broad question. As an as an evolutionary anthropologist, more at the scientific end of things, I was interested in both the hard science side of it, so what happens to his hormones, you know, what happens in his brain, all these sorts of things. But also, 
those those softer sides of it. So what happens to his psychology, his behavior? How does it affect his mental and physical health? How does he transition into this new role? So it's really broad and open because I think at the time there was like one paper on the neurochemistry of fathers, uh, which was done by Story, and a brilliant paper, but just one. Um, so it was very, very open. And I, I really started off from there researching it. And then luckily in the last sort of 10, 15 years as we've moved forward, more people have joined in. And we now know a reasonable amount about what's going on, but there's still so many questions we need to answer. You know, so it, a couple of things come to mind for me. You know, the, the you went to the research on fatherhood and there wasn't anything there. And it's really similar to what I've heard from other academics who are studying motherhood. And there's some very minuscule percentage of studies, like 3% or I, I know that's not the correct number, but it's really small that are done on motherhood. And of that small percentage, almost all are done on her impact on the baby, not on her as a mother, just on what she'll do to the baby. Nobody's looking at what babies do to the mom. So it it doesn't surprise me really that nobody was all that interested in looking at dad, though the cranky feminist in me thinks, well, there might have been, you know, even more studies done on fathers than mothers, because most medical and scientific studies are done on men. But they are, but actually, when we switch it around, so we're talking about things like birth and, and, and pregnancy, and stuff, most of them obviously are done on women in the yeah. first instance. And I would say that there are more studies. What tends to happen is they decide they're going to focus, they're going to ask a question about mums. So, for example, what brain changes occur mm -hmm. when you become parents? So, we, you know, that study was done on women a good, I would say, six or eight years before it was done on men. So it's only recent, very recently been done on men. So, so there are, you know, we understand the hormonal changes that happen to a woman when she becomes and we've understood those for quite quite you know a number of years whereas we've only understood that in men for you know a short period of time and i think i think the difference is we i think there is a reasonable amount written on the psychology and transition of motherhood mm -hmm. whereas very little has been written on the transition of fathers and i think i just wanted to rebalance things a little bit because in our society and i don't know whether this is reflected in the states as well but certainly here in the uk we kind of have quite a bad attitude to fathers so we either brand them as being absent or we brand them as being a bit useless or idiots and, we, we yeah. can give them the third category they can be bumbling idiots too it's stupid you know they can't you know they can't put the nappy or the diaper on the right way around they can't operate the washing machine they don't know what to feed the baby you know all these things and i just thought well and also that they're not needed. So there's been quite a lot of stuff in the, in the press. And I'm afraid some of it coming from a feminist angle, which is that actually we don't need these guys. You know, we can raise these babies on our own. And as an evolutionary anthropologist, that's hard for me to swallow just because human fatherhood is really rare in the mam mammalian kingdom. There's only 5% of mammals have investing fathers, which is what we have. So it has to evolve for a reason. And that reason is that we do require this figure both in our family life, but also to input. Uh, I mean, I will put my usual health warning here. I'm not necessarily talking about a biological father. This can be a social father. You know, this can be a stepfather. This can mm -hmm. be, you know, a grandfather, an uncle, you know, a best friend, whoever it might be. But mm -hmm. we need that role in our society and for our children. And so I find it hard when the argument is we don't need these guys around because actually we do. Only 5% of mammals have investing fathers and by investing fathers you mean they're present and active in the they're present and active in the so it, okay absolutely so they might be carrying the child they might be feeding the child you know they might be the one that does most of the most of the care for the child so that's it yeah they're not the, the usual mammalian father who you know 
does the business and just leaves. Yeah. Or nothing. Yeah. You know, might stick around, but literally does. I mean, if you look at the average chimpanzee father, uh, he's literally doing nothing. <laughs> so, and and yeah, yet con- considered our closest, you know, species yeah. brotherhood. Exactly. But the point is their environment and the way that their gestation and particularly their lactation, their life history goes, they don't require a father to ensure the survival of that child. We have a very complicated life history. We have a reduced gestation, as I'm sure you know, mm-hmm. and a reduced lactation period. Uh, it's you know, much shorter than it should be. Uh, and therefore, we actually need the father to help our kids survive. And that's what you mean by evolution must have had a purpose for this. Yeah, because evolution does not invest in the absolutely enormous changes required to get this guy to step up. I mean, you know, really big life history changes, social changes, you know, anatomical, physiological changes to make sure this guy is primed to do this job. If there's no point, you know, evolution is is so parsimonious, it will not cause something as complex as that to evolve unless it really, really is required for the survival of that, of the genes within that species. So there has to be a reason for the human fathers to be around. So the feminist idea or of, you know, we could do this without men in terms of the human species, I mean, other than, you know, doing the business, as you said, we couldn't, we couldn't do it without them. We could not do it without them. Why not? It's really true to say that it takes a village to raise a child. Mm-hmm. Humans, um, mainly because humans, as you know, human babies, as we all know, if we've had one, are first of all they're born what we call secondarily altricial. So, what that means, very complicated term, but what it means is they're born before they should be. And the reason for that is because our brains are so massive. So, our brains are six times bigger or more encephalized than they should be in a mammal of our size. So if we were going to let that baby stick around in that womb for as long as it needed to, to have the period of brain growth required, it wouldn't be able to be born because it would, its head would not fit through the birth canal. So it has evolved that we have this very short gest- gestation period, nine months, and then we get born this very helpless baby who has mm-hmm. a massive amount of brain development to, to go before it can even vaguely you know, move for itself mm-hmm. up to a chimp baby, for example. And because of that, because they're very, very dependent, we need somebody to step in and help us do that, particularly because if you think in the environment in which we evolved, a woman was either pregnant or lactating all the time. So we end up with this this kid who is weaned early because we have a, a reduced lactation period to enable her to become mm. pregnant again so the species, the, the population can replace itself. So we have a reduced lactation length that has evolved. So we have this thing which nobody else has got. It's called a toddler, Okay. <laughs> Nobody else has a toddler, no species apart from us. Uh, and we have this thing called a toddler. Now, this toddler is not being breastfed anymore, but it can't process its own food. It can't look after itself. But she's already there, you know, pregnant or lactating with another baby, which is hugely energetically draining. And in the environment in which we evolved, that was, you know, a, a dangerous thing to try and do on your own. So at first, it, our female kin would have stepped in. It would have been the feminist girl power thing happening because mm-hmm. – same-sex cooperation always evolves before cross-sex because cross-sex cooperation is quite complicated. It takes a lot of brain power. Um, so we always go for our own sex first. But about half a million years ago, our brains took another massive increase in size. And at that point, it was just not possible for, for female kin to help each other out to the extent that they could do it on their own without then actually risking their own children. So at that point, we had to look for somebody else, anybody else. And obviously, the guy who is the most genetically related to that baby needs to step up. And that's the dad. And so that's why it evolved. It's a combination of 
having this enormous brain, having a period of, of quite accelerated brain growth after birth, particularly sort of the first two years, having this helpless toddler who literally can't do anything. Um, so that is why we need fathers to step in. Now, obviously, human families come in lots of different ways. And that father figure, as I've said, doesn't necessarily need to be the biological father. But it's, it is very, very practically impossible, particularly in the mm-hmm. environment in which we evolved, for a woman to raise a child on her own. Can you imagine the, the conversations that took place in the cave or on the plains or wherever it was where it's like okay guys you have to step up no yeah, really, really. <laughs> exactly exactly this is your yeah. yeah but from you know what i have learned about your research from your mm-hmm. ted talk and the article that we're going to talk about in a few minutes you're saying you're explaining that some biochemical or biobehavioral uh, events take place during pregnancy and early babyhood that makes dads step up. Is that mm, yeah. accurate? Yeah. So the other thing we know about evolution is it's not good. At, it doesn't leave things to chance. So it's not going to go, hey, okay, you need to step up. And I'm just going to leave you entirely on your own to do that. Yeah. You know, off you go. You're going to be great. And you know, every that- guy said, okay, and did okay. it. So what happens is, you know, <laughs> evolution has selected for us to give this guy a bit of a helping hand in the same way that mothers are given a helping hand. So that is the hormonal changes that men undergo, So, which you know I outlined in that article. So things like the drop in testosterone, mm-hmm. uh, which occurs, we think, probably just after the baby is born. Um, you know, We see changes in the brain, which mean that we see increases in gray and white matter in areas of the brain linked to those really key parenting skills. So obviously there's the empathizing, there's the, the affection, the, the, the risk detection. There's also things like planning ahead and problem solving and goal orientation and all these areas which are key for parenting. We see the same changes in, in mum, but they are reflected and, and, and mirrored in dad. So when we say that, you know, fathering is learned whereas mothering is instinctive. I mean, I as a mother can tell you right now there wasn't instinctive when I first had my baby. You know, that's, that's, that dichotomy isn't true. Both parents have been primed by evolution to be given a little bit of, of, of a leg up to be. Now, obviously, there's a hell of a lot you still have to learn as a parent, but those instincts, those, those affectionate, risk-detecting, protecting instincts are as equally primed in, in mum as in dad. So they're kind of at this level playing field, and then all the other stuff comes on top. Um, so, you know, that's, yeah, evolution doesn't leave dads just sort of drowning on their own. It has undertaken some neurochemical, neurological changes to help them. It's really remarkable. And I'm surprised that we didn't know this earlier than 10 years Mm. ago, especially since, you know, my, my oldest kids are, you know, 30 and 31 now. And there was a huge push back in the late eighties, early nineties for, fathers to be very hands-on, very Uh, involved. Now, uh of course, you know, all of the television shows and commercials still showed them as bumbling idiots and rather useless. But there was, at least here in the States, an expectation for dads to be very involved. Mm, Absolutely. And I think it was the same here. It was, yes, the side of the new man and he would be more Mm -hmm. sensitive and he would be more engaged at home and all these kind of things i honestly i don't know why it took so long i don't know whether because as you say we still didn't know enough about motherhood and and in a way because mothers go through pregnancy and they go through birth and they go through this massive you know physiological behavioral experience you know which is so there in front of you in a way we, we want to answer those questions first maybe that's it and because we couldn't see dads physically changing 
as you were in the birthing room. You know, you couldn't see anything happening to them. They're just kind of standing there. Maybe we just felt, well, okay, nothing is happening. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's not associated with this amazing upheaval. Um, so I don't know why it took so long. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, as, as again, as an evolution anthropologist, I'm not surprised. And in a way, that's why I asked the question, because the first thing that came to my mind was, well, you know, something, it, as I said, evolution doesn't like leave people hanging. It would have tried to have done something to make this successful. Um, and it's just trying to find out what that was. So we connected over an article you wrote for the New York Times, and we've talked, we've referred to it a little bit here, but we ought to um, give it credit where credit is due. It was published back in June, June 13th, called How Men's Bodies Change When They Become Fathers. Yes. Hint, they don't just get dad bods, though, (laughs) (laughs) though they do. (laughs) And I think it's because, partly because, you know, they're, the mother in their life is eating extra and therefore so are they. It's so hard. Everyone just eats cake, don't they? Let's face it. Um, Yeah. We all, changes in our bobs, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, can I read just the the first couple of paragraphs about it? And then let's kind of talk through some of those specific changes. Is that okay? Yeah. Go for it. Uh, Okay. As, um, and this is what Anna wrote, listeners. As an anthropologist who studies human fatherhood at the University of Oxford, I've run up against a widespread and deeply ingrained belief among fathers that because their bodies haven't undergone the myriad biological changes associated with pregnancy, birth, and breastfeeding, they're not as biologically and psychologically primed for caretaking as women are. As a result, they feel less confident and question their abilities to parent. Will they be good parents? Will they bond with their babies? How will they know what to do? As my own personal and professional experiences dictate, the idea that fathers are biologically less prepared for parenthood is unlikely to be true. Um, Scientists are just beginning to find that both men and women undergo hormonal and brain changes that herald this key transition in parents' life. In essence, being a dad is as biological a phenomenon as being a mom. Ooh, I love mm-hmm. that. I love that you've got the science to back this up. Yeah. Let's talk about testosterone. So let's hear about testosterone. So testosterone is, as we all know, the, the hormone that makes a man a man. And when you are a single man and you're looking for your partner, having high testosterone is, is really great. So we know that men with high testosterone are more competitively successful in finding mates. They're more attractive to the opposite sex because testosterone gives them all those really strong masculine features. Um, so, you know, people with high test, men with high testosterone tend to have what we call high reproductive success. They are much more likely to go on and have lots of children. However, when you become a dad for the first time, we don't really want you uh, looking to the outside world for another mate. We need you to look into the family. Uh, and testosterone is not going to help you do that. Um, so this is like known as the challenge hypothesis. How do we deal with this testosterone, which is actually now going to negatively impact our, our survival, our behavior, because we need to focus on our babies. Uh, and what happens is the testosterone drops. And in a way, it's, it's surprising it took us such a long time to focus on this in humans, because actually, if we look at any species, bird species, reptile species, mammalian species, where we have investing fathers, this drop in testosterone happens. In all, in all other investing species. So why would we be any different, to be honest? Um, and it, it is true. You know, we now know from, from endless populations, you know, from, from, you know, hunter-gatherers in Africa to China to Canada to Britain to, you know, Jamaica, that 
the same happens in humans, that when a man becomes a father for the first time, his testosterone drops. Uh, a study in the Philippines found that on average by about a third, um, and it will not return to where it was originally. And that's really critical because we know that men who have lower testosterone are more sensitive fathers. They're much more alert to their child's needs. They're much more motivated to meet those needs and they're much more empathetic. So it's really key that you know some of that testosterone does go because then you are going to be a much more sensitive and investing father. They don't need all of it. It's okay. Yep. It's fine. You know, because some of you know, if I say this in a talk, you can see the men go, oh my God, you know, because I'm going to, you know, there goes sort of emasculation. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm no longer a man. Um, but I say to them, you know, okay, you get this drop. But yeah, first of all, you don't need it all, really. Um, you know, and actually I think from an evolutionary point of view, the most male thing you can do is, is have a baby. But we also know that if you drop your testosterone, testosterone tends to limit the effect of oxytocin and dopamine, both of which are really important when we bond. Mm -hmm. So if you drop testosterone, the impact of oxytocin and dopamine on you is is heightened. So actually, you get a much stronger bond with your baby, and you get a much bigger neurochemical reward when when you interact with your baby. So actually, it's really good that that testosterone has gone. It's a fair, fair exchange of hormones. It, you think it's a fair exchange. Some men would probably disagree, but I think it is. <laughs> so let's talk about the brain changes that happen. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so uh, we've known for, as I said at the beginning, quite a few years that women undergo these brain changes, and that's, that's unsurprising. The brain is, again, being primed to be particularly good at parenting. So we see changes in the very core of the brain, uh, which is where your unconscious brain sits, where where your emotions are. So we see increases in gray and white matter linked to the areas of the brain associated with affection, so affectionate, caring, nurturing behaviors, but also uh, the area associated with risk, uh, and that's the amygdala, so being able to spot whether there's a risk on the horizon for your baby. So we see increases there, so a parent becomes better at those those key instinctive parenting behaviors. But also, obviously, a lot of being a human parent is actually quite conscious what we would call cognitive behavior. So actually, you're consciously thinking about how do I do this? How how am I going to be a better parent? And we see changes, increases in gray and white matter, again, in areas of the brain associated with empathizing. So that's the ability to know your child's sort of emotional and practical state and what they need from you, but also related to planning and problem solving. And also goal orientation, which is actually really important because you need to focus on your baby exclusively and not be distracted by other things that are going or you know are going on at the same time. And you also need to be able to prioritize your baby's needs. So you know, I think we all know as parents, you know, sometimes you can be thrown at like four things your baby needs at that one. <laughs> it's got a dirty diaper. It's about to you know I don't eat something really inappropriate. You know, uh, it's screaming about something else, and you've got to go. Okay, which one am I going to do first? Which is the most vital <laughs> thing, and I'm going to focus on that. Um, and so the changes in the brain allow that to happen. But what's really interesting is those have been duplicated in studies that we see amongst men now. So men get exactly the same brain changes that's fascinating to me i love it i love it yeah brilliant and i like i like um that you talk about in the article that um you know different parts of the brain light up Mm. but that they're different for moms and dads can you explain that a little bit more yeah so uh, again evolution as i said at the beginning is parsimonious so it's not going to cause two people uh, to evolve the same role if it's not necessary. If it's not necessary for two people to do exactly the same thing, then we're not going to waste our energy doing that. So what's happened is when we look at the brain of a dad and a mum when they're, for example, viewing videos of their child or thinking about their child, we see some synchrony. So, for example, the areas related, as I've said, to affection, 
uh, and particularly um, uh, empathizing. They're both firing off really happily in, in mum and dad's brains at about the same frequency. However, there are other areas of the brains where the peaks in activation are different. So for a mum, that real peak in activation is in the core of the brain. That's the affection, nurturing, risk detection bit of the brain. And it's really, you know, firing off on all cylinders there. Whereas when we look at dad, yes, he has some activation in that bit, but that's not where the peak activation is. The peak activation is actually in the neocortex, which is the folded outer area of your brain uh, where your conscious brain sits. And in particular, the areas associated with sort of social cognition and, and pushing your child's developmental physical and mental developmental boundaries and that kind of that difference reflects the slight differences we see in the roles that parents have so i i've looked at dads all the way around the world and whilst they achieve their jobs in lots of different ways depending on the environment they're in they all share one thing and they all share the belief and the drive that a major part of their role is to introduce their child to the wider world um so quite often i'll say to a dad what what do you want to achieve? You know, how do you want your child to be in the future? And the number of times they will say to me, I want my child to be a functioning good member of society. I want them to be good in a social situation. It's all about pushing them out into the world. And that's reflected in those two different brain areas. Now, it's not to say that mums don't push those areas, but it's not where the peak of activation is. So, so we see this. How do moms answer that question? In terms of what do they want for their child? They, quite often, mums will say things like, I want them to be not happy, but I want them to be content and I want them to feel loved and I want them to feel secure. And, you know, and obviously from that comes the ability to go out into the world and be an amazingly successful human being. Mm -hmm. But they focus much more on, on sort of looking inwards. When we look at the attachment between parents and children, the attachment between a mum and a child is what we would call quite exclusive. It's quite inward looking. And it's very much about nurturing within that within that pairing. Uh, when you look at dad and child, yeah, they can nurture. But it's on top of that, they actually turn their child's face outwards to the world. And it's more about saying, right, here is the world. You are going to have to succeed in this world. I'm going to be your secure base. You can come back to me. I love you. But you need to go out and you need to challenge yourself. And it's about doing that. And we see these differences. And again, we see these differences in, in, in all different cultures. Um, I mean, people then say to me at this point, what happens if one of those parents is missing? Yeah. And what happens if one of those parents is missing is amazing. Uh, I can only tell you what happens in a dad's brain because I don't think the study actually has been done on moms. So any mum researchers out there, you need to do this study. But um, a study was done showing what happens in gay primary caretaking fathers' brains. So there's not a mum around, okay? But this guy is in a way, let's say, taking the mum role. And what happens is when we look at his brain when he's interacting with his child, both areas of the brain far off at peak intensity so we have what would we call mum's area in the brain in the center firing off you know that's that's him doing that nurturing role mm -hmm. but his dad bit is still firing off on the outside bit but what's even more amazing is there's a new neural connection between them mm -hmm. so they can talk to each other so do, do both parents get that in in a gay couple would both you know, nobody's looked at the secondary parent yet which is a real shame it would be really interesting like so this was a study actually looking at primary caretaking parents and mm -hmm. so what they did was they they looked at mums and they looked at dads and in that case that was they for some, whatever reason they cho chose gay fathers I think maybe because it was easier to find a primary caretaking gay father um and that's what they looked at it would be really interesting to know again yeah what the other parent what's going on with the other parent it would also be fascinating to find out what happens in the mum in the brain of a single mother 
Yeah. Because obviously, but I would predict that a similar things happens because the human brain is amazingly plastic. And whilst I study what generally happens in a sort of heterosexual mum dad situation, though I have looked a bit at gay fathers, um, that's just what happens there. Something else happens. So it's, it's not the case that I ever would argue absolutely need this, you know, father, or absolutely need a mother. What you need is you need an adult who fulfills these roles for a child and has that secure attachment, which is all important. And so if they're on their own with this child, you're saying that the brain figures that out and makes up for it. Yeah. And whether it's partly to do with the conscious drive of that parent to go, okay, I really need to fulfill both roles. Yeah. You know, because there's a lot of learning involved. It may be that that's, that plays a role that you sit and you go, right. I'm, and and my, my work with gay fathers has shown that a lot of conscious contemplation goes on about roles. So I will say, you know, some, so, so some gay couples very much go down what we call the traditional role and one will say, I'm the mum and I'm the dad. Mm. But others will really mix it up. And one of them said to me, you know, with all the problems that you can have being a, a gay couple having a child, one of the great joys is you're not restricted by gender. So people aren't going, well, mums have to do this and dads have to do this. And then you get to pick your role. Yeah. And yeah. really mix it up and do a little bit of mum, a little bit of dad. And that's, you know, I think that's one of the great joys of, of being a gay parent. And I think, you know, having raised so many kids myself that so much of our role as a parent just comes from what life throws at you. So I imagine that you know, if you're a single parent, it may not actually be a conscious decision that you're going to play both roles, but life is happening to your kid exactly. and there's no pass off. So you just have to adjust. <laughs> exactly. And it's instinctive. And but what's amazing is the human brain then changes to try and support you as much as they possibly can in achieving that role and still, you know, giving as, as good a developmental environment as you possibly can to your child. Oh my God. Humans are amazing. Oh, I mean, that's the thing about humans is, is as an anthropologist and, you know, as anthropologists, we kind of study them just like any other species, you know? So I began in primatology. I used to study monkeys and in a way you study humans in, in the same way, but they are awe inspiring just because of the huge complexity of their brain and their huge ability to kind of not evolve in front of you because that's the long term, but change in front of you and adapt in front of you. It's amazing. It is amazing. Yeah. Well, we don't get to talk for very much longer, but before <laughs> we do our wrap up questions, I want to talk about your book. Tell me about it. Mm -hmm. So I decided um, that I needed to write all this down. Yeah. Because uh, uh, my great big thing I have about my work is I don't want to be one of those academics who sits in their ivory tower and just kind of stares at their navel. I wanted to be somebody who your work has actual outcomes for for real people um, and this work certainly does um so i decided it needed to be written down in an accessible way that that you know new dads new parents or people reflecting on the relationship they had with their dad or how they were a dad maybe 20 or 30 years ago could understand what was going on so yeah i wrote the life of dad uh, which is the making of the modern father um and the idea was yeah that i wanted people to be able to read this and really understand who this person in our society was and answer all those questions that the dads I study have, you know, like, you know, what's going to happen to me when I become a father? How am I going to build that relationship with my kid when I haven't given birth? You know, you know, am I going to be any good at it? How do other people do it? All those, all those sorts of questions. And it's, so it's a book that 
does go into the science and tells you everything, you know, all the changes we now know happen, but it also goes into some, you know, it's not really a practical book. It's not going to tell you how to change a diaper, I'm afraid, but it's, um, but it's very much about explaining who dad is and particularly how he built his bond with his child because it's, it's a different way than, than the mum does, but also the unique role he plays in his child's development and why it's really important that if he is around, we can really kind of empower him and give him the confidence to step up and, and you know, be as involved as he can be. I often think, you know, from the get-go, we disempower fathers and we um, reinforce the role that they are not as capable as as mothers. You know, even in the delivery room where we'll hand the baby to the father and say, now don't drop that baby, be careful there, watch your head, come on. He's not going to do that. No, (laughs) why do we do that right from the very minute? we're all you know even me with my you know we can all slip into that tendency because it's culturally I think so so deeply rooted and we think it's funny we think it's funny you know we're doing it in a teasing way but it's belittling and dismissive right from the start the idea be able to say to these dads say to these dads you know what biology's got your back you are primed to do this you've got the same head start as mum yeah you can do this and then if you do do it wow first of all look at the amazing relationship you're going to build with your baby which is going to be amazing just for you and for your baby but also look at the unique thing you're not a duplicate of mum you're different and you're critically different because your baby needs you to be different and therefore you know you will do it your own way and you will contribute all these really special things to your child's development you know and we know how critical now dads are particularly during toddlerhood and particularly during adolescence they have a real role to play so it's about telling them about that and as you said yeah empowering them you know giving them a you know putting them on the pedestal a little bit next to mum and saying right you've got this and you can do this yeah yeah I I appreciate that you wrote the book specifically that you know there's they're going to get that message, and then yeah. there's all of the science to back it up, which, yeah. you know. Science to back it up and say, yeah, this yeah. is why we can say this. And it also it goes through, you know, a few examples of how fathering is done around the world. Um, but as I say, you know, and also about, you know, what, what you can bring to your child's life and why it's so special. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. I'm, I, <laughs> I think that this has been a really remarkable conversation. Um, I like to ask a couple of rapid-fire Okay. Last minute ones. And okay. this next one, I think, is going to be kind of a duh. <laughs> what role does feminism play in your life? Oh, it's massive. Femi- you know, I am a feminist. I'm bringing up lots of feminists, I hope. You know, feminism really underpins everything I do. It's about equal equal rights, equal support for, for everybody, I believe. And it's not about pushing one gender down to make the other one, you know, go upwards. It's about, hopefully, equality for everyone. Good answer. How would you fill in the blank? Nobody ever told me that. Oh, crikey. <laughs> uh, nobody ever told me that. You know what? Nobody ever told me that you can't learn everything in a book, I suppose. And that's what parenthood really brought me, having written a book. But that's what parenthood type kind of taught me is is we are instinctive animals and we just need to go with it but i think i believed before i had kids that you could just you could just learn everything if you just read a book <laughs> i was an excellent parent before i had children <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> okay my last question for you then is where are you in the world of motherhood where am i i am i would say i wouldn't say midway through because you're always a mom aren't you i'm always. i'm dead on the road well on the road but 
it's just constantly changing, you know, as your children develop and I've got two such different personalities uh, and you think you've got something and then you realize, oh my God, I haven't got it because this one's doing something completely different. Um, <laughs> so I'm like most mums, I'm on the journey, but I'm probably just holding on by my fingernails. <laughs> we all are. We're all <laughs> hanging. Maybe that's why women have long fingernails. It is because they're constantly breaking. Oh, I now I know. <laughs> And because life is so hard, we get acrylic and gel tops on it. Exactly. So that it all looks beautiful. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I've got um, scrubby, nasty nails that, you know, go in water all the time. So, <laughs> so yeah, I, I, mine never lasts. <laughs> well, I've had a really good time talking with you, Anna. And I think that um, you and I could be talking for a while. Yeah, definitely. It's pretty yeah. good. Yeah. In fact, wouldn't it be fun comes come I mean you and I are talking in August right now, but come Father's Day yeah. next year if we We talk again. Yeah, let's talk yeah, it through. That, that, there's so much more to say. Oh, heck yeah. All right. <laughs> well, thank you very much and let's talk in June. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye. Bye. Mama said there'll be days like this. There'll be days like this. Mama said. Mama said. Okay, folks, that's it for this week. Our guest this week was Dr. Anna Machen, and you can learn more about her at www.annamachen.com. And that article that um, we mentioned is called How Men's Bodies Change When They Become Fathers. It's in the parenting section of the New York Times on June 13, 2019. And you can learn more about me at jeanfaulkner.com. And once again, somebody told me my name's hard to spell. J-E-A-N-N-E-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R.com. Tweet me at jeanfaulkner. Email me and send me your questions at jean at jeanfaulkner. Find us over on Instagram and Facebook at Common Sense Pregnancy. And please pick up a copy of the book, will ya? Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics is produced by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Picture Studios. Bye till next week. Hey guys, we're Sarah and Matthew Bivens, hosts of the Doing It at Home podcast, a show dedicated to empowering stories and resources around home birth. Our mission is to normalize home birth and encourage mamas and families to be educated, supported, and empowered by their birth choices whatever they are. You can find the podcast in Apple, Google, Stitcher, the Pod Network, and on our website, diahpodcast.com.